Good morning. Welcome to Mercy Hill. My name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here. For some of you, you're thinking, hey, who's the new guy? For some of you, you're thinking, hey, who's the old guy? And I'm a little bit offended by that. Uh, like I said, my name is Kevin, and uh, for the last year and a half, I have been uh, our teaching pastor out at our Lake Country location, but uh, know many faces around here because previous to that, uh, actually since day one here at Mercy Hill Church, I was the worship leader, and I've worked with young adults and the youth and all of that stuff, and so um, you might not know who I am, but I've been around longer than you, probably, and uh, it's been pretty awesome to watch God's hand move in this congregation, in our congregation, and all that he's been doing uh, in the last year and a half, but gosh, from the very beginning. And so, like I said, about a year and a half ago, I moved out to, uh, well, I'm still here in the Bayview area living, but uh, my role changed to our Lake Country location, and uh, I just want to say God is doing some pretty awesome things. It's been uh, a joy to be uh, with our congregation out there and to uh, learn and grow uh, in kind of that lead teaching role out there. And um, it, God has been so faithful. This last uh, summer, the beginning of this summer, we uh, got a new location. We are now meeting at an uh, old seminary in the woods. It is so amazingly beautiful, um, and uh, it feels much more like home than the old school that we were in prior to that. Um, and it's just been really fun to watch God kind of uh, unfold some things and to see his faithfulness and the relationships that are being built. And uh, it's just been really great. And so not just because of the people, but because of the faithfulness of our God. And it's been really awesome. So I am uh, so excited to be here uh, today with you guys and uh, to worship with you all and to share God's word with you all today um, by uh, the what it seems uh, from my experience this morning, you guys are really excited that my wife is here, um, and so that is great. If uh, if that's ever you know the the old or your better half, it is apparent that you think that as well. And so uh, she is. My family is here, and uh, like I said, it's a joy to worship with you all today. So, if you have your Bibles, you can sw- flip open to uh, Romans chapter five. We'll be there in just a few minutes. Um, but before we do that, I will have a question for you all, and. Um, it's a pretty simple question, but I want, to, I want to ask you, have you ever wondered if you were qualified? Have you ever had that thought creep into your mind, like, am I qualified for this? Like, or have you ever maybe had that thought about a coworker? <laughs> like, is that guy really qualified to be here? Especially your boss, maybe? Maybe not? Okay. But maybe there's a particular role that you're supposed to fill or a particular position that you're supposed to hold. And that position holds some requirements. There's some qualifications that are needed for that. Someone needs to say that you are qualified to be in that role, to be in that job. Maybe you're recently married. And maybe the thought qualif- maybe that thought crossed your mind like, am I ready for this? Am I prepared for this? Am I equipped for this? There is... Um, the, the most clear time in my life where, or I guess clear is the opposite of what I'm trying to say. The time in my life where I was so unsure of whether or not I was qualified was the day I found out that I was going to be a dad. Anybody else? Brand new parent might be the most insecure person in the world. Maybe. I was uh, 
it was right when we first planted Mercy Hill. I was uh, working multiple jobs, you know, as you kind of do sometimes when you're planting a church. I was sitting at the desk at my job, and I kid you not, and this is not a dig on my wife, but I got a text message telling me that she was pregnant with our first baby. This isn't like number four, which we have four. Was it like she texted me, my mouth hit the desk, and the thought crossed my mind, who thought this was a good idea? <laughs> like, who thought that this guy would, like, this is a good idea for this guy to be in this role? To be responsible for little lives. Like, are you joking me? I am not qualified for this role. That's what crossed my mind. Well, keep that idea of being qualified in your head as we read our text and as we open God's word today. Like I said, if you have your Bible, turn to Romans chapter 5. Starting in verse 1, it says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that sufferings produce endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is where I really want to focus in on. Verse 6, it says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let's pray before we do anything else. Father, once again, we come before you, and God, I ask, I plead with you this morning that your Holy Spirit would change us. God, that we wouldn't just be encouraged, that we wouldn't just be stirred, that we wouldn't just hear some words that tickle our ears, and maybe we retweet it or we share it, but God, we don't let it truly impact our hearts. God, today, please enable us to not just be a hearer of this word, but God, let it transform our lives. We love you. Let us live to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So when I came across this text again for the first time in a while, I came across it earlier this week, uh, I, I was so stirred by it. And it's funny because I've read this passage I don't know how many times. When I looked at this passage again, I saw a beautiful contrast between the nature of Christ and the work of Christ and those who he's calling to himself. I, like, I saw me in this text. I saw this crazy contrast between a God who is so loving and caring and gracious and me. <laughs> 
someone who is weak and a sinner and ungodly and at one, and I, at one time an enemy of God himself. There was this beautiful, drastic, yet subtle contrast painted in our text. Verse 2 says, through him, by faith, we have access into this grace. Here we have a picture of the grace of God, the grace of God in Jesus Christ that he is forbearing and loving and, and gracious to call those who have been enemies to himself. Verse 5 says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. That the God of the universe didn't just set all this in motion and say, good luck, Kev. Say, good luck, guys. But through His love, by His love, through the Holy Spirit, He's given us Himself. What a beautiful thing that the God of all the universe would be so with us in that way. That He's poured His love and He Himself into our hearts. And then we get to the part that I love because it really highlights this contrast. It says, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a right, righteous person, though perhaps someone would die for, uh, for a good person, one would dare even to die. And then it says, but God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died. While we were still sinners, here's that beautiful contrast painted for us. I look at myself and I say, man, that's me. That's me. That's the one who's, who's lost. That's the one who's been, who's been lost. That's the one who's been wrapped up in my sinful nature in such a way that I'm sure I have not been, that I was completely disqualified for God's goodness. Completely not worthy, not, not uh, qualified to receive any bit of goodness from my God because I too, because of my nature and my deeds, have been an enemy of God. But yet Christ in His atoning blood justifies us. It reconciles us and it saves us. Who are we? Who were we? Were we the righteous? Nope. Were we the friends of God? Nope. Were we the ones who were, des- who were deserving? Were the ones who were qualified? Nope. Not according to our text. This text really highlights the human condition. It really highlights the condition of man that is mentioned all over the Bible that there is this fallen state, that there is this fallen condition that started way back with our original parents in the Garden of Eden. And subsequently, it's a state and a condition that all of mankind from the very beginning has been born into. A condition full of corruption, a condition full of brokenness, a condition that is deep-seated, It's not something, a lot of times my brain thinks it's something that I've created over time, that that basically, I I put it this way in the past, that there's this cosmic balance, right, of good, of righteousness, and of sinfulness, that at one point, at some point, man, like at some point my sin became too much, and the scales tipped out of my favor, and now I need the grace of God, but no, no. It was never in my favor because my my nature was sinful and wrathful. 
But God, but God still saw fit to love me and to die for me even when I was that enemy. I see here in our text just this little glimpse of the condition of man. And it describes me of while I was still weak, while I was ungodly, while I was a sinner, and while I was an enemy. In the next chapter, in Romans chapter 6, it actually describes this condition, describes us in our former way of being slaves to sin. And man, that just conjures up all sorts of imagery, doesn't it? Conjures up the idea of being bound or controlled by something, unable to break free of something. And in our flesh and in our sinful nature, we truly are bound, unable to break free from that which holds us, our sinful nature. Romans chapter 7, verse 18, Paul makes this declaration to the church in Rome. He says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh not even a little drop. There's nothing good that dwells in me, in my fleshly, sinful nature. Are you feeling encouraged this morning? I know a lot of you came to church to be like hoorahed up and encouraged to get out there to do your best for Jesus. Kind of really set the tone in a negative fashion. But there should be great encouragement in our text today. Because when you realize who you are and you realize who he is and how much he loves you, it is life changing. And today, my hope and my prayer is that we would be changed. So sometimes when you think of this uh, sinful fallen nature, a lot of times we have a hard time wrapping our brain around it. A lot of times, like, I don't want to accept it. Like, because I look around and, and I see some glimpses of goodness in the world. We see acts of kindness. We see acts of charity, some philanthropy. Maybe sometimes we even give personally and of our time and our finances. We serve here at church. Maybe we run over to the soup kitchen or the homeless community or whatever it is. And, and we see some awesome, shareable, retweetable things online. So you're like, ooh, that's good. Let's share that. That's, that points to goodness and not complete depravity, right? We see it and we look at it and we say, well, the heart of man is capable of some good, of some morality, of some good deeds, maybe even on a fairly regular basis. And part of our fault in this is viewing this corruption and this sinful state, viewing our depravity in the lens of our relationship one to another, in our relationship with fellow man. Because the thought of our corruption and the thought of our fallen state and the thought, the, the thought of our sinful nature is, yes, it does have ties to the way that we treat one another and the way that we either do good deeds or are completely wicked and stricken with um, selfishness. But primarily, the idea of our sinful nature is about truly our nature in our relationship with God. Our status before God, what you and I actually bring to the table to our God. 
Is there anything of value or worth that me, in my fallen nature, in my sinfulness, my previous way, is there anything that I brought to the table? Some of it um, really resonates with this idea of, um, well, what is it that makes us a sinner? A lot of times, again, once we, we look at it, we think it's because I sin, it's what makes me a sinner. It's the actions of what I'm doing that makes me the sinner that they say that I am. But actually, it's because we are a sinner that the acts of sin flow out of us. It's in our nature. Ephesians chapter 2 describes it this way. It says, you were dead in the trans." Uh, excuse me, the trespasses. I always want to say transgressions there. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you which walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Children of wrath. Are you feeling encouraged this morning? There is this state and this condition that's not this accumulation of our sins, our actions, but a condition that is in the heart of man that needs so desperately to be redeemed needs so desperately something that can beat it, something that can conquer it. And it's not in us. It's not found in my willpower. It's not found in seven steps to beating whatever. It's not found in these three steps or that. It's found in a person, and that person is Jesus. You and I are not righteous. Romans chapter 3, verse 9 says this. What then? Are we Jews any better off? Not at all. For we already uh, charge that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside, together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. But when you jump down a few more verses, Paul continues this thought, and he gives some just one of the most beautiful pieces of Scripture I think I've ever come across. Verse 20 says this, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sin. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. 
Praise be to God that he is just and the justifier. He's the qualifier. He's the one who qualifies us to stand before our God in righteousness. You realize the holiness of God. The Bible describes him as dwelling in unapproachable light. There is no way you or I could stand before him except by Jesus. He is the one who qualifies us. He is the one who makes us justified, makes us righteous, makes us qualified to stand and have any bit of relationship with the holy God of the universe. It's Jesus 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might be the righteousness of God. Who? Us. For our sake. It was a work that he did for us. He became sin. He made him sin. Then not just he Jesus had no sin. He he did he lived a blameless. He walked a blameless life, but the nature of sin was put on him. The wrath, the consequence of sin, the wrath of God was placed on him so that you and I would be his righteousness. It says that we might become the righteousness of God. He wasn't deserving of the punishment of the cross. He wasn't deserving of the full wrath of God to come down on him. That belonged to you and to me. It was rightfully ours because of our actions of sin, yes, but much deeper than that, because of our sinful, fallen nature, the corruption that is in, in, innate, that is in us. Sin is a demanding and thirsty foe. It demands blood. It demands death. And it is never satisfied. The blood of sheep and goats that were offered in the Old Testament, they were done so in faith over and over, awaiting the holy, righteous, eternal one, Jesus. That spotless lamb whose blood was shed for you and me that atones for and covers our sinfulness, and then His righteousness is put on us. His righteousness clothes us. So when God looks down at us, I told this story before, I was waiting uh, at a parade. I was sitting at a parade. I was sitting on the side of the street with my kids. My, ra- my wife ran off to the bathroom, and I was sitting with our kids, and, and a guy, a very good-hearted, I'm sure, brother in Christ, good-intended brother in Christ, he was coming down the parade route. He was evangelizing. He came up to me and he says, Brother, if you were to die today, would you go to heaven? And I said, Yes, I would. And I think he was shocked that I was like so certain of that. Like I was like, Yes, I would. He wasn't, Oh, I hope so. Some days, some days it's, Oh, I hope so. No, I'm just kidding. I said, Yes, I would. And he said, Oh, you're good enough to go to heaven. And I said, No, I'm not. But Jesus is. But Jesus is the righteous one, the only one, and there is any bit of righteousness. And because of faith in him, when he awakened my heart by the power of his Holy Spirit to the beauty of the gospel, when it became no longer foolishness to me, 
That I would lose everything, that I would give everything over to my God, and in exchange, He would put His life and His righteousness on me. That one day I will stand before my God in all confidence, boldly coming before the throne of grace, not because of anything that I have done or anything that I could do to earn any bit of favor with my God, but Jesus. Because of Him and His righteousness that He imputes to us, that He gives over to us, we can stand with all confidence before our God. Thanks be to God. It is His work and His work alone. It's not in you or in me. And so I say that and I say, watch out for the trap. There's a trap. There's something that happens. Sometimes we fall into this trap for a little bit of our time and a little bit of our life. But some people, unfortunately, because of some really poor theology, they stay in that trap for all their lives. And the trap, simply put, is self-righteousness. And I say that word, and as I say that word, most of the time when I think of self-righteousness, my mind goes right to the Pharisees. Goes to this like haughtiness, right? Where you are very pious and pompous. So when my mind goes first off to, to self-righteousness, that's kind of the image. Anybody else, that's the image that comes up? That guy's so self-righteous. Who does he think he is? It's all judgy. Right? And the Pharisees, they like they're they were like they're the religious punching bags. Like we always mention them. They're like just so horrible and awful. Like Jesus, I mean, Jesus calls them brood of vipers. John the Baptist calls them brood of vipers. I mean, that's not great. It seems almost like too easy to mention their names. But as he's preaching, as Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, he gives some warnings. And he says, beware of practicing. Verse 1, it says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Okay, so practicing righteousness. He's looking at the, the pompous and the arrogant. He's looking at the hypocrites and he's saying, when you practice your righteousness, so then he goes into some examples. He's like, when you pray, don't pray in the street corner all loud and, 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 and like, so everybody look at me. Right? It's that, that, that pompous and, 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 and arrogant kind of approach to self-righteousness. He says, when you fast, okay, don't look all sad and let everybody know about your, your sacrifice that you're making. I gave up that cheeseburger for Jesus today, kind of stuff. <laughs> like, like, when you give, like, don't make a scene about it. Like, you know, like, you drop it in the basket and you jingle it around a little bit louder so everybody knows. Like, jingle it around. Like, like, like first off, like like coins, nobody carries coins. Like it's, that's annoying. Nobody carries actually paper money with us anymore. Like most of you gave online today, probably. But it says, don't announce it. In fact, don't even let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. And so, so many times we think of the hypocrisy and the arrogance tied to self righteousness, particularly in the Pharisees. But there is another slightly more subtle and sneaky way that self-righteousness manifests itself. And simply put, I think it's in the striving. If it's it's in the um, it's in the stressing out, knowing that you're not good enough. 
It's in the stressing out and the burdensome weight that being disqualified carries with itself. When you are still plagued by that past and not feeling like you could ever stand before your God, the trap is this, and in this form of self-righteousness, the trap is, okay, I got to do better. I got to do more. There's, I'm not doing enough for my God. I have to do more. I, I so fall short in this area. I got to do better. So then it becomes about grit and self-determination and striving. And next thing you know, you are just utterly exhausted. Anybody ever been there? You're exhausted. You're trying to either earn or maintain a righteousness that's not found in you. And it's exhausting. It is a form of self-righteousness. Striving. Earning. Not good enough. One more time. So I just, I better do more. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So many times we use that verse and it's, you know, about the stressful times of life and it's about all the practical stuff that we face. But I really feel like this is a spiritual encouragement in our striving in, in trying to manufacture some form of righteousness outside of Christ. That I have to do more, I have to do better, that there is something that I lack. But I'm telling you, church, if you have Jesus, you lack nothing. Christ is all. His work on the cross is sufficient and full, and because of Him, and simply putting our faith in Him, we lack no thing. The striving and in, 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 the, in the grits and the self-determination, we hope to accomplish something that cannot be accomplished by fleshly means. We cannot accomplish spiritual things by fleshly means. Practicing good deeds may help create structure, maybe some intentionality to help us not actually do the works of sin, but the acts themselves, the good deeds themselves, are powerless over sin, and only Jesus is powerful over sin. This is so key, particularly in parenting. Being a parent is hard. I was expecting way more amens. Maybe I'm just doing it wrong. Maybe it's just really hard for me and all of you guys got to figure it out. But being a parent is hard. Okay, okay. It's too much. It's too late. Like, you, you, you have to um, set up structure. And you have to discipline them when they are out of line so that you can help create some better behaviors in them, right? Some days the goal is just to go to Target and not cause a scene, right? Anybody know that? Okay, like, and, and my kids are great. They really are. They're, they're wonderful, like, they're well-behaved kids for the most part, but they're kids. And so you do all of this creating structure and discipline and because you want to make sure that they uh, behave appropriately, and you go through life and you're creating this uh, behavior and this structure and, and these standards that this is what appropriate behavior looks like. And 
unfortunately, we can really do a disservice to our kids if that's all it is. And so parents, like, this is a big thing for me and you right now. I'm coming at you hard. Um, because morality is not going to save your kid. Um, structure and good discipline, although very biblical, okay, we have to set up structure, we have to discipline our kids so they know appropriate actions. And when they step out of line, we need to discipline them. It is all right and biblical. But your kids' right behavior will never save them. Never, ever, ever, ever save them. They might be successful in life, maybe, but they might ultimately end up in hell without giving them Jesus. Their morality has no power over sin. Only Jesus, his sinless life and his righteousness, his atoning work on the cross, the blood that was shed that covers and eradicates sin, and not just the actions, but the sinful nature, and creates the new person, the regeneration that you and I read about in John chapter 3, the born-againness, that only comes by the Spirit of God in the work of Jesus. Not behavior. Not do the right things and you'll get the cookie. Don't do the right things and there's no ice cream for you after dinner. Dude, it's a reality in my house. Get them Jesus. That's one thing that I love about the children's program here at Mercy Hill Church is like, it's not just like getting them to be like these well-behaved little churchgoers. But the heart of the teachers and the leadership in this church is to get Jesus into their lives. But I'll tell you this, it does not start in the church, it starts in the home. You are the biggest pastor in their life, not me or Pastor Tommy or anybody else. And so this nature that you see manifest in the aisles at Pick and Save, this sinful nature needs Jesus. It needs discipline, but it needs Jesus. It needs the righteousness of God. Christianity is not just not sinning. It's not morality wrapped in religion. It's a love and a treasuring and a, a reckless abandon, obedience of a person by faith, the only one who qualifies us, the only one who justifies us, and the only one who could ever be our righteousness, and of course that's Jesus. So my encouragement for you in this place today is don't fall into the trap trying to qualify yourself. Don't fall into the trap of of setting up self-righteous means. Don't fall into the trap of perpetual striving and trying to maintain a righteousness that's not your own. That's in Jesus. In Christ, we are counted as the righteousness of God because of Him and His work. Any righteousness that we would try to bring to the table would be of filthy rags. The righteousness that we now have in Christ is His. We could never maintain it. As you hear that today, do you see His amazing love for you? Do you see how while you were a sinner while you were an enemy of God because of the mercy of God, because of His amazing love for you, that He reconciled you to Himself, to the glory of His name. He made you in right standing. He made you justified. He qualified you in a way that you could never do 
in your good works, in your striving, your own self-righteousness. His great love for you poured out in Jesus when you were at your worst, not worthy, not qualified, or deserving of his grace. I stopped short in Ephesians chapter 2 a little bit ago. I want to read the rest of it here. I stopped with this line in verse 3. It says, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Okay, so that's who we were. And that's where I stopped for the moment. In verse 4, so beautiful. It says, But God, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love in which he loved us even when we were dead, in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ by grace, by his grace, you have been saved and he's raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Sounds like we're qualified because of him, because of his work to be with him in the heavenly places so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. It so resonates, the same sentiment as our text that we read from Romans today. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so today in this place, if you've been striving for a righteousness of your own, if you've been trying to qualify yourself in your own fleshly means, Stop striving. Repent. Turn from that way and embrace the life and salvation that is only in Jesus Christ. Maybe you've been a churchgoer for a long time and you've found yourself gravitating towards certain forms of self-righteousness. Maybe at some points you found yourself the, that haughty one looking at other people and going, man, I'm glad my life's not messed up like that guy. I'm glad that I'm not quite like that guy or that girl, that that I must have it more together, that there's some form of self-righteousness in that. If you repent of that, if that's been your attitude, and embrace your brothers and sisters, knowing that any bit of righteousness that you have isn't yours, it's Christ's. And then walk out of this place today in freedom, in freedom, knowing that, that it's not yours to maintain either. But that's in Christ Jesus. And so from this place, not that any, uh, not that good deeds don't have some role in the life of the believer, right? Because faith without the works is dead, without those good deeds. And, and Ephesians 2, a little bit further down, talks about how we are his workmanship. That he's done all of this in us for his glory and that he's actually laid out good works for us to do in advance so that we might point to the gloriousness that is Jesus. So when you go from this place and you do your good deeds, not to earn a righteousness, but to simply worship and glorify Christ. That's the living of the believer. That's the living of our lives. And so as John comes, in light of everything that we've read this morning, in light of the thought of a righteousness in Christ versus a self-righteousness found in us in our striving, I would ask you to respond. As the Holy Spirit has stirred you today, as the Holy Spirit has spoken to your heart, I, I, the one thing I love about God 
is I know he's working in this place. He is speaking to you specifically about you and your stuff. He's talking to me about me and my stuff. And I'm so tempted so many times to crowd out that little voice and not really respond, to not really lay my life down in front of him again, allow his Holy Spirit to press his word into my life. And I I call this culture we live in the retweet culture. Like we hear something good, maybe even some of you did it today, I'm probably not because there's not a lot of things I say that are all that good. But maybe you like heard something, you're like, ooh, that's good. And you're like, we're going to get out your phone, like tweet that out. Like send that out. We're like, we share everything. Here's something that's good or fun, share it. We hear something that like is like could be impactful, we're like, share it, share it, share it. We want other people. But like, do we ever take the moment to like, I hate saying this word because it's gross, like marinate in it? Like, do we ever, do we ever take the moment to allow the Holy Spirit to take what he's doing and what he's saying and to like really massage it into this heart that gets calloused and full of stone so that it can be worked into this soft, like I would be soft before my God? The temptation then to respond in any type of church service is to go, okay, well, I can't wait until John's done singing so I can get out of here and feel more comfortable because right now with whatever God's doing in me, it's kind of uncomfortable. I know I need to do something. I know I need to turn. I know I need to repent. I know I need to respond, but my flesh is just warring against it. Stop it. Don't do it. You're in church. Like, this is like safe place for us just to be bare before our God. If we can't do that here, like, we're not going to do it out of here. So allow him to do his work in you today and don't run out of here. If you need to go spend time in the prayer room, spend time in the prayer room. If, if it's at your seat here, that's awesome too. If you leave from this place, do so quietly. If you have to go, no judgment. It's cool. Hot ham and rolls of weights, I'm sure. I would encourage you to respond to your God today.